Hello and welcome back to Deconstructing the Bible. My name is Jason Steffenhagen. I'm the associate pastor at The Well, United Methodist Church in Rosemont, Minnesota. And we are in the midst of a season where we are re-examining, reconstructing, reimagining children's stories. So we're looking at different stories in the Bible that we may have been taught when we were kids, what we learned from them at that time, what was maybe beautiful about what we learned, and what we maybe need to unlearn and relearn and find anew as we examine them as adults. I want to start off by sharing a few lyrics from a song that I enjoyed when I was in college. So I was in college in the early 2000s. I know that makes me maybe older than some listening. Maybe that makes me a young buck to some of you listening. I'm not sure. But when I was in college, the Dave Matthews Band was my favorite band, and that probably comes as no surprise to some of you that know me. And I loved the album Every Day. Kind of a controversial album to some by Dave Matthews Band, but a fun one nonetheless. And on that album, they had a song called The Space Between. And there's a couple lines that I wanted to read from it because I enjoy some of these lyrics. So a couple of the, the lines go like this. The space between where you smile and hide is where you'll find me if I get to go. The space between what's wrong and right is where you'll find me hiding, waiting for you. The space between in your heart and mine is the space we'll fill with time. I love these lines because it kind of has this dualistic idea, this in, out, up, down, right, wrong mentality, smile and hiding, wrong and right, your heart and my heart, And yet there's this kind of third space being created. Like, I'll be somewhere between these things. I'll be between the where you smile and where you hide. I'll be between what's wrong and right. I'll be between your heart and mine. And we'll actually fill that space with the time we get to have together. The reason why I like these lyrics is because at a young age, and actually throughout most of our adulthood even, dualism becomes the dominant framework uh, for how we understand the world. It is what's easiest for our brain. Our brain wants things to be simple. We want our neural pathways want to go fast. And that means it's either this or this. It's either yes or no. It's either right or wrong. It's either in or out. We love dualistic thinking. And it's actually the easiest way to teach children about the world. There's right and there's wrong. There's yes and there's no to certain things. I mean, imagine playing the game red light, green light growing up. Everyone knows how to play red light, green light. I hope you know how to play red light, green light. One person stands at the end of the room. Everyone's behind the line. They turn around and they say green light. Everyone runs as fast as they can to try to get to that person. They turn around suddenly and yell red light. And if anyone is still moving, they have to go back behind the line and start over again. And the goal is to get to that person without them ever seeing you run because you're only moving when it says green light and you're always frozen when that person, he or she says red light. Here's the thing about red light, green light. There's no yellow light. I mean, it's based on a stoplight, which has a yellow light, but because it's children and it's a game, we don't use a yellow light. I mean, imagine you're driving your car and you have a five-year-old with you who is just becoming aware of the world around them, and you are coming up to a stoplight, and they know what green means. It means go. They know what red means. It means stop, and now suddenly it turns yellow, and what do they say to you? Well, what does the yellow light mean? And now some of us are going to say what we should say, which is, well, a yellow light means we need to be careful that if we have enough time to stop, we should stop and slow down because the light's about to turn red. But if we're too close, it's okay. We can still go through. We just need to be aware that the light is about to change. 
others would probably say a yellow light means speed up, go faster, make it through so you don't have to wait for everybody else who is about to stop at a red light. And so we have different ideas about what a yellow light means, but we all know that there's a nuance there. There's a, there's a something else added to what's going on. It's not just red light, green light. There's a yellow light. Now, we don't use a yellow light in the game red light, green light, because kids don't need it for that game, and we want things to be simple. It's dualistic. So we take that idea, this idea of dualism, and it so often finds its way into the Bible. And it's totally normal. So for instance, I love the story of the stairway to heaven or Jacob's ladder, it may have been called. And this comes from Genesis chapter 28. So a little bit of context, Jacob is on the run. He's stolen his older brother Esau's birthright and his brother Esau is gonna be mad at him. So his mom says, you need to run, go to your uncle Laban and just get out of Dodge. You don't wanna be here right now. And so. Jacob is on the run. And so here's what it says in verse 10 of chapter 28. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set, right? I mean, this is like ancient, ancient Near East. So we're talking like no stoplights. We're not, we're, you know, there's no flashlights. So either you have a torch or you don't. And so you rest when the sun goes down. So taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. You can see he's on the run because he's using a rock as a pillow. As he's laying there, he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord or the living presence. And the Lord said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. In other words, everywhere. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land and I will, leave, I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the living presence or the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it, anointed it. He called that place Bethel, which means the house of God. Now, I remember learning about this story when I was a little kid, and it was a fun story. We imagined and drew pictures of angels on this ladder. We imagined that there's this connection between the earth and the heavens above, and it was just fun to imagine and visualize what this could look like. And one of the ways that it was used was to help us recognize that God is in heaven, and we here are on earth. And there's a need for us to be connected to God somehow. And so very easily that shifted from a conversation about Jacob and the founding of Israel and it becoming a great nation and blessing others to a conversation about how Christ is the one who helps connect us to heaven, right? And so this story, um, in a way, got utilized, maybe some would say hijacked or got, got you know, pulled into this other space to talk 
about the beauty of what Christ does as the one who helps us make that connection to God so that we can spend eternity in heaven. And so we can see how the dualistic mindset of there's an earth that we're on, there's a heaven that God is in, and there's a stairway where we need to get up it. We need to climb the ladder in order to get up to heaven. So how do you climb the ladder into heaven? And the answer was always by the grace and the forgiveness of Christ, and that God makes a way through Christ. Now, that's a very beautiful way of helping someone understand the need for Jesus, because Jesus provides that place of connection to God, that relational dynamic that helps us understand and connect to God and helps us understand the idea of salvation. The problem, the problem, the problem with this explanation is that it does two things. One, it pulls us out of the story in a way that we lose the dynamics of what's really happening within the story itself. We lose what's happening with Jacob and the, the promise, the covenant that God is making with Jacob, which is the same promise that God made to Abraham. And so we lose the dynamics of what's happening in the actual story. And then we also make it applicable to something that maybe it's not meant to apply to directly. Maybe it's not meant to bring us straight to to Jesus in the same way that we imagine it to be. So let me explain what I'm talking about. First, that spot is called the house of God, Bethel. El meaning God, Beth meaning house, so Bethel, the house of God. Now it's interesting that the house of God in this story, is not the heavens. That is not what is being named as the house of God. It's actually a rock, a random rock that he happened to be resting his head on and had a dream while laying there. That rock becomes something named as the house of God, which has some fairly significant implications for how we understand earth and space and time and where we find ourselves and where our feet are, that there's something holy or something set apart or something sacred about the very ground upon which we rest our head or the ground upon which we step. The other thing that is interesting about this is if we read it closely, is that I always imagined the goal was to be going up to heaven. But if you notice, the angels of God were ascending, going up, and they were descending, going down. Now, some would say, yes, that's because they were engaged in spiritual warfare and they were battling, um, you know, they were going up into the heavens and they were coming doing battle for us on earth. But if we step aside from that and just say, you know, there's something about ascending and descending. In a way, it's a, like, there's a form of connection between the two, that maybe the divide between heaven and earth is not as great as we imagine it to be. Maybe there's something connective about heaven and earth and the fact that the angels are going up, but they're also coming down. There's something going on in this story. Maybe it's telling us something about where we rest our head, where our feet go. 
Maybe it's telling us something about the ground upon which we walk and find ourselves. These stories were written down for the first time when the people were in exile. That's when these stories got captured and all the oral tradition that was passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation, it was finally cataloged and written down and put into these books that we have of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and the other books of the Hebrew scriptures. They were finally written down, the majority of them, when they were in exile in the land of not the promised land, not the place that God had called them or that God had even promised Jacob, but in Babylon. They were in a place where they were seemingly not supposed to be. The temple had been destroyed. The people had been taken out of the land, and now they find themselves in Babylon. And so when they record this story of Jacob's ladder or the stairway to heaven or the naming of the house of God as Bethel, they do this while in exile. And so why is this significant? Because if God is only in the temple or in a high holy place or in a heaven, then what hope do we have? What hope could Israel have? What hope do they have in exile? What hope do they have if they find themselves on the losing side of a battle? But what if even the common ground can be God's house? What if the place where you rest your head is God's house? What if the place that you find where you stand is God's home? So why not this place? Why not in exile? Why not everywhere you rest your head or place your feet? Maybe the very ground upon which you are standing or sitting or driving or doing the dishes or whatever it is you're doing while you listen to this, maybe that is holy, sacred ground. Maybe that's the point of this story is that the ground upon which we find ourselves is holy. I mean, Jacob even says, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. Maybe he wasn't aware of it because God is in every place, that every place is holy. Maybe this isn't a stairway to heaven. Maybe it's a stairway to earth. Maybe this is meant to show us that even this place is sacred. It's sacred because it is the earth. It's sacred because every place is infused with God's goodness. Maybe we need to integrate and reconcile as opposed to remain dualistic. Maybe that's the beauty of this story, is that we think that there's this heaven we are supposed to go to, this earth that we're stuck in, and we need to somehow go from one place to the other. But what if the goal is less about leaving and being taken away and more about recognizing that God's kingdom is meant to be birthed right here, right now, and it's already happening. You know, I love how Jesus often will say the kingdom of God is at hand or it's near. One translation even says it's within you. It's like right here. It's tangible. It's this thing happening around us. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Well, not a new creation later. You're a new creation right now. Salvation is both a future hope, but also a present reality. Salvation starts now. What if that's what's going on? You know, I mentioned earlier that maybe this story isn't just a, an allusion to how we need Christ to go from earth up into heaven when we die, but it's fascinating that the word Christ means the anointed one. 
And what happens in this story? Jacob anoints this rock with oil. There's something sacred and set apart and holy going on on the ground. What if we saw this in every place we went? What if that's the point of the story? That when we're in our home or our school or we're at the mall, we're in the gas station, we're at a workplace, we're in the woods, we're out for a walk. What if everywhere we go is sacred ground? How would that change the way we operate in the world around us? What if Yemen is sacred ground? What if Ethiopia, where there's a war being fought, what if that is sacred ground? What if Ukraine is sacred ground? What if Minneapolis is sacred ground? What if this church is sacred ground? What if my living room is sacred ground? What if my son's classroom is sacred ground? And then what about relationships? Could we see relationships as sacred ground? Like what happens between us is creating a space. As we talked about, as it was was sung about in that song, the space between, there's, there's something about space and place between people. We exist in the space between one another. What if that could be sacred space? What if the space and the place of our relationship was sacred? And what about the space and the place within ourselves, that mental ground? What if that space could also be sacred? What if the mental space that we have, the mental ground, what if it's infused with heaven? What if it's integrated and reconciled? What if our need to maybe seek out help once in a while, or what if our desire to go see a therapist is not done out of shame, but it's because... We're trying to be a reconciled, integrated person who is seeing our mental health as sacred ground. What if getting help for your your mental health is a sacred endeavor? What if we started framing our mental health, our relational health, our emotional health, our physical health as sacred endeavors? What if we saw what goes on in courtrooms and in Uh, hospitals? And what if we saw what goes on in a police station? What if we saw what goes on at a traffic stop? What if we saw what goes on in another country or in our neighborhood or our home was sacred? What if we saw that as an opportunity to say, this isn't just about what's right and wrong and how do we get out of here and go there, but how do we integrate? How do we reconcile? How do we make this into something What if I anointed this moment? What if I anointed this space? What if I anointed this relationship? How would it change? Maybe we need to recognize that it's already there. Maybe we just have to be aware of it. And then do something about it. Thanks for listening to Deconstructing the Bible. Hope this was encouraging, challenging, thought-provoking it messed with you a little bit, well, it's not always a bad thing. Thanks again.